Welcome to the Gut Doctor Podcast, where Dr. Neil Parikh describes GI disorders and answers common questions related to the GI tract. Please note this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We hope you enjoy. So sometimes when I do these episodes or when I see patients in the office, I try to organize multiple GI disease states under one umbrella of what I call gut dysbiosis. There are many different terms for this, you know, people like irritable bowel syndrome, leaky gut, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And for a lot of these, our traditional go-to diet is, you know, the low FODMAP elimination diet, which, you know, we're very fortunate to have, or I'm very fortunate to have colleagues who are registered dietitians who can help me and my patients go through these. Um, but often they come back and ask me or they ask our, my dietitian colleague, for more dietary nutritional guidance. So I'm always trying to learn more. And today I have the pleasure of having registered dietitian Erica Bay to tell our listeners some of this guidance about dietary stuff, nutritional stuff, when it comes to this gut dysbiosis or bacterial overgrowth. So Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. So before getting into, into any food specifics, is there any general lifestyle advice you have for our, our SIBO patients. And I guess I'm going to pause you. I mean, for this episode, I'm going to use the term SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. But I think a lot of this advice can probably be extrapolated to gut dysbiosis, leaky gut, irritable bowel syndrome. But we're going to talk mostly about SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth here. So, so Erica, sorry, any general lifestyle advice for those patients? Yes, absolutely. So especially after antibiotic therapy, certain lifestyle changes can help to prevent a recurrence of SIBO. So one of the biggest issues with SIBO is intestinal motility. If a patient is constipated, they're likely at increased risk of developing SIBO due to excess stool in the colon, preventing full clearance of the small intestine. If a patient is constipated and dietary fiber and hydration is ineffective, I always recommend establishing a bowel regimen with their physician first and foremost. I also recommend that SIBO patients space their meals and snacks three to five hours apart and finish eating for the day by 8 p.m. This will potentially allow time for phase three digestion where the migrating motor complex initiates a cleansing wave of the small intestine. So all this means is that the contents would then be moved into the large intestine, which then minimizes chances of any residue food lingering in the small intestine, creating a bacterial breeding ground. Another important lifestyle tip is just in general to make sure that they're practicing proper food safety techniques in the kitchen, including hand washing, washing all produce thoroughly, minimizing contamination of meat, fish, poultry, and produce. Um, And then I also recommend patients to chew each bite of food really thoroughly. And this is because digestion begins in the mouth as our saliva contains enzymes such as salivary amylase, which breaks down starches in our food. I usually recommend at least 15 chews per bite, which kind of sounds like a lot, but if you count it while you're chewing, you kind of find that you're actually doing it. Um, So this just allows for faster digestion once the food bolus hits the stomach and intestines, which should help increase intestinal motility. And then lastly, I always emphasize the importance of regular moderate exercise, such as 30 minutes of brisk walking daily. And this just helps to stimulate the GI tract and get it moving. 
I really wouldn't recommend high-intensity exercise, though, as it's been linked with intestinal permeability. So it's funny. I, I think my mom used to always say, chew your food carefully or chew slowly. So I think if she had just told me to count to 15, I would have probably been much more effective than trying to just figure out how to chew slowly. So great tips there. I mean, obviously, regular exercise is fantastic. And I, I do agree. It does help with gut motility you know, constipation, if you're constipated and you have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, it's really hard to get over the bacterial overgrowth, just like you said, because I tell my patients, it's, it's almost like a plumbing issue, right? If you can't empty out, you're going to keep retaining that bacteria. So, exactly. Um, you know, we, we, we talked about FODMAP when we started the episode today, but are there any foods or categories of foods that you believe lead to small intestinal bacterial overgrowth? So the short answer to this is really no. SIBO is really a symptom that occurs due to motility disorders, as I mentioned, um, things like IBS or gastroparesis, um, even some immune, autoimmune or immune-mediated diseases like diabetes, untreated celiac, IBD, or hypothyroidism um, can really you know, slow down intestinal motility. Another thing is low stomach acid, which can also increase the risk of SIBO. Low stomach acid usually occurs naturally as we age, but can also happen with continued PPI use, although the research on increased risk with, of SIBO and PPI use is mixed. When motility, immune function, or the pH of the gut is altered, microbes just have a better chance of overgrowing. But in terms of food that can lead to SIBO, you know, we do touch on FODMAPs as they don't directly cause SIBO, but the bacteria creating SIBO do depend on fermentable foods as their fuel source. Um, so another big one is uh, sugar alcohols, which are found in a lot of foods nowadays, especially sugar-free foods. Um, so those sugar alcohols can, you know, really be fermented by a lot of that bacteria. Um, and now there's many diets out there for SIBO, but the there's really no evidence to support their effectiveness. It's recommended that patients just consume a healthy, balanced diet full of lean proteins, fruit, vegetables, and healthy fats during and post-antibiotic treatment if they were not previously on the low-fat FODMAP diet, um, you know, if they had IBS and started the low-FODMAP diet and then were found to have SIBO. Um, it's likely that the patient is avoiding foods or skipping meals to try to mediate their symptoms, and further diet restriction can often be very overwhelming for them. However, if the patient is still having residual symptoms post-antibiotic treatment, I would then recommend them to follow a low-FADMAP diet for no longer than two to six weeks in order to starve off any residual bacteria. And if the patient was previously on the low-FADMAP diet for IBS, they can continue to follow the diet and then begin the reintroduction phase two to weeks, two to four weeks post antibiotic treatment. I think that's critical, Erica. The two to, the time frame. Often when we talk low FODMAP, you know, a basis often with your patients, they sometimes people think it's a forever diet. You know, sometimes patients are told, "Oh, go do the low FODMAP diet," and they don't do it with the dietitian. And then I may see them three, four months later, and they're still on the restrictive phase or eliminating phase, and I'm like. No, that's, that's very restrictive and very life altering. If you're constantly trying to restrict all the FODMAPs, you know, forever. So I think that two to four week, two, six period period is key there. Yes, definitely. I see so many patients in the exact same situation. They're on it for four months and I'm like, okay, it's now time to start reintroducing foods. Exactly. 
So another popular topic with SIBO um, and other GI distress conditions is, is gluten. So empiric gluten or empiric dairy avoidance, even if you may not have celiac disease or lactose intolerance. What are your thoughts on just empirically eliminating those items? Yes. So I get this question all the time. So many patients come to me and they say, okay, so you're going to tell me to take out gluten and dairy, right? And the answer is usually no, unless the patient has celiac disease, a sensitivity to gluten, or has IBS and found that wheat is a FODMAP that they just don't tolerate. I would not advise a SIBO patient or any patient that matter to avoid gluten. Um, even for the patient with IBS, with a fructan or wheat intolerance, they can still have other foods that contain gluten, such as sourdough and spelt breads with no issues. Now for dairy, I would advise patients with lactose intolerance or suspected lactose intolerance to avoid lactose containing dairy. They can still have low lactose dairy products like hard cheeses, lactose free milk and other lactose free products. And I've really noticed a lot more lactose-free foods available in the dairy aisle in the past few years, which is great for people who cannot tolerate it. However, it's not necessary to avoid lactose if the patient is asymptomatic with intake. Okay, again, I think that's critical. So if you take if you're listening to this episode and you you eat some lactose-based product and you feel fine, then it's probably okay. You don't need to keep avoiding it. It's not going to cause any further harm to you. Um you mentioned, and I, I'm sorry, I'm jumping back a little bit, but you mentioned earlier that depending on if they're on a specific SIBO antibiotic treatment pre post, you may alter their approach to the low FODMAP diet. Can you go back to that for a second? I think that's very curious. Yes, absolutely. So for a patient who's already on the low FODMAP diet going into antibiotic treatment, there is some really interesting research that it's recommended to liberalize the diet a little bit and include a few FODMAPs, such as like a slice of wheat bread or an apple. And this is just, uh, you know, this little tiny amount of FODMAP each day. And the thought behind this is that fermentable foods will then simulate the bacteria in the small intestine and improve the eradication with the antibiotic. Uh, research has actually found that rifaximin in particular was more effective when fermentable carbohydrates were consumed. Now, my recommendation for this isn't for every single patient that's on the low FODMAP diet, especially if they're very symptomatic, this might cause more issues for them. Um, but for, a, you know, it's really on an individualized basis. If you think that the patient can tolerate like a whole apple in a day, um, it might be beneficial. Interesting. Uh, I guess going along the lines of popular diets and SIBO, you know, you've probably heard, and I've definitely heard of the elemental diet. Um, what are your thoughts on the elemental diet? Or, you know, if do you mind for a second, explain to our listeners, what is the elemental diet? Yeah, absolutely. So the elemental diet is uh, basically a liquid diet that uh, essentially starves bacteria of any fermentable food sources for two weeks. Um, it doesn't contain any food source for that bacteria. Um, the downside to the elemental diet is the taste. It tastes really like terrible and it's very difficult to follow. Um, I think that the elemental diet can be help, like a helpful tool for patients who either have allergies to the antibiotic or have a preference not to take that antibiotic. And 
it has been shown to be very effective at, you know, reducing the bacteria, but we don't fully know the effectiveness of the diet for long-term eradication of the bacteria, meaning like the recurrence rate. Yeah. I, I often tell my patients, I'm very proud of them when I see them after they've gone through an elemental diet, I'm like, you know, it oh, takes courage. <laughs> um, and you, Eric, another great point. I mean, a lot of these therapies, whether they're dietary, antibiotic, herbal, we don't know the long-term ability to really keep SIBO at bay. And I think that's part of the reason that our patients often are asking us for dietary and nutritional advice when it comes to small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, I guess as we try to wrap this episode up, can you tell our listeners the potential nutritional implications with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth? I have patients who often are concerned that they're not absorbing the current nutrients, you know, because they've had this overgrowth for some time. Can you shed some light on that? Sure, absolutely. Um, so the most common nutritional implication seen with SIBO is fat maldigestion. And this typically occurs because bacteria render our bile acids inactive in the small intestine. So bile is essential for fat absorption, including fat-soluble vitamins such as vitamins A, D, E, and K. Vitamin K deficiency is rare because our gut microbiome actually produces it on its own, but a vitamin A or D deficiency can lead to night blindness and metabolic bone disease, so it's really important that patients get screened for these deficiencies and that they're corrected. In some cases, an oral pancreatic enzyme, including lipase, which is the enzyme that can help break down fat, um, can help with fat digestion and absorption. Um, additionally, patients with SIBO are also more likely to have low iron status due to poor absorption and definitely should be screened for anemia as well. It, on the flip side, it's actually possible to see elevated levels of folate and other B vitamins due to microbial production in the small bowel. In the colon, our bacteria normally produce folate and other B vitamins, but extra bacteria in the small bowel will just cause you know greater amounts of that production. And then finally, SIBO patients may be at risk of malnutrition due to the likelihood of skipping meals to minimize symptoms, which leads to inadequate intake, weight loss, and muscle atrophy. Um, so muscle loss can lead to pelvic floor dysfunction, which can then slow intestinal transit time, thus furthering their increased risk of recurrence happening. Yeah, it's like a uh... It's a vicious cycle. You know, if you don't want to eat because you're afraid of your symptoms and then you slow your gut speed down, it goes back to the start of our episode, which we talked about constipation, how constipation can be a reservoir for recurrent SIBO. So hard to win that way. Um, I guess one way to win for our listeners is to speak with a registered dietitian. I mean, Erica, this was fantastic. Um, a lot of this is stuff we we want to know more about as, you know, GI providers. And I think really, really reinforces how you need the partnership with the registered dietitian when dealing with small intestinal bacterial or overgrowth and other GI conditions. So Erica, thank you so much for your time today. I hope we can do another one of these in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.